Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to the Good Lion Podcast. I am here with Dominic Doan. How's it going, man? It's good. I'm currently in this crazy smoky weather here in Portland. You know, we have these wildfires that have been going for the last week or so. And oh, man. yeah, man, the, the air quality I found out yesterday is literally the worst of any city on earth. <laughs> so, oh gosh, wow. you know, they have like these, these, these markers for it, where if, if you're like, you know, in the fifties, it's okay. That's like New York city. If you're like a hundred then it's kind of dangerous where, yeah. you know, maybe it's Shanghai. Well, we've been like in the 400s, unhealthy air quality. Wow. So it's kind of surreal, man. It's like a scene from Blade Runner or something. What a, what um, a historic time to be doing ministry. That's that's crazy. Oh, man. Yeah. It's like 2020. It's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Best year ever. <laughs> that's where we are. Best year ever. Yeah. Well, dude, it's so good to have you on the show. For those of you guys who don't know, Dominic is the lead pastor at Westside Jesus Church. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I... I I stumbled upon you years ago when my former youth pastor, Evan Wickham, moved to Portland and got a job at your church. And so I've been kind of like mm. a long time, I've, I've been creeping on your sermons and just a lot of the stuff going on in, in that network of churches. And so I've, I've been so blessed by uh, your teaching. There was a sermon you did years ago about the problem of evil that actually mm. stuck with me. So I really appreciate that. And yeah, it's just, it's a blessing to have you here. Oh man. Well, thank you. Yeah. And you and I kind of share similar roots at Calvary Vista. That's where my family, when I was young, first became followers of Jesus. And wow, I think I was like 10 years old when um, first went to Calvary Vista. Wow. And yeah. And your dad's the pastor there now, right? Yeah. So back then, was it Brian Broderson who was the pastor? It was Brian Broderson. Yeah. Okay. Man, that's crazy though. That's man. It. I remember hearing I when I was listening to my dad's <laughs> podcast and I was like, wow, that's crazy. He's been at Vista. Wow. So yeah, just so many links, so many connections. Can can you just for the audience sake, uh, give us a brief background on just who you are, what you do. And I, we also would love to hear about, you've written a book called uh, When Faith Fails. I've actually got a copy of it sitting right here on my desk. It's very good. I read it and loved it. And uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Like you mentioned, I'm a pastor here in Portland, Oregon. Portland's made the news recently for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fascinating time to be here. <laughs> I'd love to do another um, episode with you just about that yes, topic because yes. yeah, there's, oh, a, boy, there's a lot yeah. of people I know who have some strong opinions about Portland and I'd love to talk to somebody on the ground floor to get their perspective. But anyway, yes. so yeah, go, go that on. That is uh, an explosive topic, so to speak. So yeah, I've been here in this area for, I don't know, eight years or so. Prior to this, my family and I, we were in Oxford, England, and then before that in Hawaii, and then before that we were in Vienna in Austria. Oh, wow. That's and awesome. before that back in England, and before that I was missionary in Mexico and, and a little country called Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Yeah, so this is kind of where God's brought us this, this last season of years, and it's really been a great journey. I, yeah, wrote that book. Uh, it was kind of years in the making um, where I wrote it for a number of reasons. One, 
was a personal journey I went through of, of deconstruction mm. and almost losing my faith mm. and then coming back to faith. And then second wrote it because the church here in Portland, and I'm also involved at George Fox University. Um, we have a lot of young uh, kind of college age, Gen X, Gen Z people who come. And this is an issue that many people are wrestling through is what do you do mm. when you go through times of deconstruction? What do you do with doubt? Mm. And I think by and large, uh, many of us haven't really been well prepared on how to engage with that topic. Yeah, uh, It's kind of a dirty secret where you just kind of bury it and hide it under Christianese and blanket statements and church services and kind of Lego gospel, you know, everything is awesome theology. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we, we don't really like to honestly engage with it. Right. And so this is a book where I, I attempt to do that, where kind of wade into those waters and let's, let's talk about that. What is it? How do we understand it in our lives? How do we understand it from what Jesus had to say about it? Mm. Um, what do we do with it? How do we move through times of it? I also open up and share some of my own story there of, of doubt and deconstruction and reconstruction yeah so that's great it was yeah it's a fun it's a fun a hard process <laughs> writing the book particularly because i made the decision you know i want to just be honest with my own story and share where i've been yeah. on this and yeah. i think anytime you are vulnerable it's the best thing to do it's also it's hard because you're kind of putting your heart out there so yeah that came out with thomas nelson about a year ago wow yeah it's a great book it resonated so much with me when i was reading it because everything you're saying it, it so resonates because that is so our heart here and what we do with this show you know we love young people and we feel like you know me and brian who run this show as people who grew up in the church i'm a pastor's kid myself I know how easy it is. I've seen like my, my friends who grew up in the church have questions and doubts and they never were allowed to really wrestle with those things. And so they just buried them deep down and that, that doubt burst into unbelief for so many people. And I see that happening, not just with millennials, but with Gen Z and, and really, I mean, I see it all across different ages. People are struggling with this today. So I think it's important for us to be able to wrestle with doubt and your book really, I feel like gives people just a helpful and hopeful view of that. And I love that you talk about deconstruction, but with the emphasis on the need for reconstruction, because That's right. there's yeah. so many podcasts and books and just, you know, even teachers these days who really focus on deconstruction. I mean, we've seen mm -hmm. that even that deconversion stories have become the new testimony, you know, people talking mm -hmm. about how they converted from Christianity and people are praising each other for that. Oh, you're so brave to step out of that. Right. And I think we need to recapture, you know, just that reality of like, we need to engage with people's doubts. And so I think you, you do that quite yeah. well. Man, well, thank you. You know, you're right. It, this last year, it's been fascinating just seeing the number of high profile Christian leaders yeah. who yeah. have come out, so to speak, on social media and said, you know, I'm no longer a Christian. I've deconstructed people applauding that. I, I think what those who applaud the deconstructionists are failing to see or maybe don't initially recognize is that deconstruction isn't the end of the story. Deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction won't last very long. Hmm. So for example, you know, the, that, the building you're sitting in right now, you, you could go outside and grab a chainsaw and you could start to deconstruct the building, take off the roof, take off the walls. 
you know, tear it all apart and then post on social media. I've deconstructed it. Yay. You know, that's very brave of you. Okay. But there is a, a follow-up question that has to be asked. Hmm. And this is where it's very painful for those who are going through deconstruction. I don't want to minimize that. It's one of the most painful things you can go through because the, the follow-up question is, okay, now what? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. What, what you can't live your life very long with, without four walls and a roof. Yeah, um, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, or Absolutely. a foundation for that matter. You, you, there has to be something, some grid, some way that you see the world, some framework uh, that enables you to make decisions and move forward in life. And, and I, I actually believe that pure deconstruction, pure agnosticism really doesn't exist. Everyone, mm. everyone has a framework. Mm. <laughs> and that's what you find with those who, you know, I could list some names that we'd all recognize right now, well-known prior, they used to be Christians, now they're ex-evangelicals or whatever. They've gone down a path of deconstruction a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. But you look at where they're at now, and they've actually reconstructed to a certain point. Yeah, And some some will come back, or they'll reconstruct their own version of spirituality. And it's fascinating to me to see that it always seems to go down this path of, especially with these well-known people who come out and deconstruct, they end up kind of reconstructing a, a weird version of the prosperity gospel slash humanism, mm. right? where it's just right. very me-centric and the universe wants the best for you. And it kind of ends up in a very mushy place yeah. where a lot of spiritual language is used, but there's no depth, there's no foundation there. It doesn't actually, it doesn't mean anything, right? So. Uh, deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction, I think, can be a dead end road if mm. there isn't some healthy thought through reconstruction on the other side. Now, one mm. thing I would want to say is, I, you know, I don't want to just like say that deconstruction is bad. I think deconstruction o- often can be a very, very healthy thing. Mm. And what I mean by that is sometimes our faith has taken things on board that is unhealthy or things we've made central to the gospel that actually aren't central to the gospel. So you remember that there's this fascinating um, story by Jules Verne, I believe, and I think it's called Mysterious Island. And it's about these four prisoners who escaped from prison Hmm. and they built themselves a hot air balloon (laughs) and (laughs) they make it out of just whatever supplies they can find in the jail. And they escape miraculously, but then suddenly they're like, oh, snap, we, none of us know what to do next, right? We're, we're in this thing, we escaped, but mm. now where do we go? Yeah. And so they, they start to flow down over, over this ocean and they get further out and then they start to run out of fuel mm. and, and it begins to get closer and closer to the, the stormy waves. And like, we got to lighten the load. So they throw some things overboard, it, it, the balloon goes back up, but then after an hour or so it starts to go back down and they're like, okay, maybe we... She get rid of our food supplies. They get rid of that. It goes back up and it repeats this number of times to get rid of their weapons. They get rid of everything. And finally, there's nothing more to get rid of. Mm. And they're about to crash. And one of them's like, well, we could always cut the basket. And so they tie themselves to the basket or to the ropes that hold the basket. Then they, when I cut the basket free, so it's literally just the hot air balloon and them 
all hanging on by these ropes. Mm. But that was what they needed to get them to this island, and they ended up surviving. Wow. And and I, I share that because I think sometimes God takes us on similar journeys in our faith of, of healthy deconstruction where we kind of have to take an honest look at the basket yeah. and say, wait a minute, I... I've been told my whole life that this is central to the gospel, hmm. right? Yeah. And then you reevaluate it and you're like, wait a minute, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe this is just <laughs> yeah. a byproduct of cultural Christianity. Maybe this is just my own pastor's proclivity towards a certain hot button topic that he always talked about, but yes. I assumed was the gospel, but it's not really <laughs> the gospel, you know what I mean? So there's so many examples there. And I would actually argue, no, the gospel is about Jesus. He's the rope we hold on to. (laughs) And he's the one that will get us to the island. And so healthy deconstruction is saying, okay, what is it in my faith that actually isn't good, isn't healthy, isn't central? And then we can begin to throw those things overboard. Yeah, that's but good. That's good. You're also at the same time you're pursuing truth and asking the question, okay, what does a healthy reconstruction look like? Right. Yeah. And I think I think the image that comes to my mind, going back to the idea of a house, I think that if if we're talking from the stance of presuming Christianity is true, and we have this idea of a house, you know, and I'm thinking of a young person, you know, they've got this house that represents their faith and the foundation is Jesus. But then into the house has come, you know, pests, rats, termites. People have come into the house and put things there that shouldn't be there. If the response to that is just to go, well, this is a terrible house and to just burn the house down, it's you're losing something so valuable to you because mm. outside influences, in, in, they added negative things into this beautiful house you once had. That doesn't mean the house still isn't good yeah. and true. The answer is to go and find those things and eliminate them. And so just just like you're saying, yeah. if if you've been in church and a, a pastor, you know, because past, we're, we're, I mean, you and I, we've both done pastoral ministry. We know very well pastors are human and fallible. Pastors can go against the Holy Spirit and introduce things to their congregation that is not right mm-hmm. and not true. And and mm-hmm. when we encounter that, the reaction shouldn't be to just tear the house down. But yeah, but I think it's hard to get there for people. And so with that, I'd like to move to, I have actually some questions that people have sent in. These are questions from some friends of mine, some former students of mine, people on Instagram that have sent in these questions. And uh, I'd love to throw some of these at you and just let you pick yeah, them, sure. just tackle them. So uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Here's, here's the first one. This is a personal one. Dominic, what is the biggest challenge that doubt brought into your life and how did you overcome it? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. So I think there's there's really two unhealthy responses to doubt. One is to idolize our doubt. And that's where we see those who are just advocating deconstruction without a part two. (laughs) And the other unhealthy response is to demonize our doubt and to suppress it. Mm. Um, For me personally, it was that second one where I'm an introvert by nature. And so introverts tend when they're going through stuff to kind of keep it to themselves. Mm. If we are having a struggle, if we're having a bad day, if there's something we feel hurt by, those of you listening, we're introverts, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just kind of you put up a shell and, mm. and uh, you try and deal with it yourself. And when it comes to doubt uh, and spiritual you know, struggles, we can do the same thing. And that was definitely part of my story. So 
I remember growing up, and this is kind of a longer story, but there were things that were causing me to question my faith. I didn't actually become a Christian until I was around 10. Hmm, yeah. And God uh, dramatically rescued our family. My dad was an alcoholic and Jesus got a hold of him. And my mom came to faith and hmm. my parents who were separated at that time. My dad was living in San Diego in his hmm. car. And he came over one night and gave his life to Jesus. It was like this crazy, just amazing conversion moment and mm. God set him free and our, our family began the process of being healed. And wow. um, so all at once, suddenly it was like whiplash, uh, you know, my, my upbringing goes from you know <laughs> having an alcoholic dad and uh, just a lot of hard things at home to suddenly now it's all about Jesus and like mm. the gospel and church. And so we just like launched into church life. And yeah, it seems like um, you had some very tangible <laughs> stuff to look at where it represented yes. your faith. Yeah. Like, oh, my dad has changed. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, yeah, totally. So there there, there was a side where, yeah, I really believed God was real, Jesus was real, I, I'd seen the power of it. But I think there were some unresolved things in my own heart of like, wow, we just went through a lot of hard stuff. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of hurt in my soul I don't know what to do with. Um, and so that, that began to grow at different points in my life. You know, as I mentioned, I was a missionary in Mexico for a year and working with disabled orphans and just seeing the pain that they were going through. These are kids who have been many abandoned by their families, had severe disabilities, and we had the honor and the opportunity to help take care of their needs. Mm. But just seeing their pain, their struggles, some of them just each breath was a challenge. Wow. That that kind of raised that philosophical question of the problem of evil for me, the problem of suffering and mm. God, why? You know, I remember struggling with it then. And and so there were just these layers that as the years went by, just particularly for me, it was around the issue of, of suffering and seeing people who are suffering. And, you know, in ministry, you walk alongside of people who are suffering. You're there, you know, and the guy who's been battling cancer for months dies and his yeah. family is devastated. You're there when the mom gives birth, but it's a stillborn and you see how the family's torn apart with grief. Like you're in those moments, right? Right. And so I just remember it's kind of building up, building up, building up. And on top of that, there was just some theological things I'm wrestling through too. Just, mm. yeah, just reevaluating different aspects of my faith. So long story short, for me, the biggest struggle was tr I'm keeping it all secret. Like no one knew. Right. But there is this struggle going on inside of me mm. of uncertainty and struggles and doubts and like David in the Psalms, like how long, oh Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. And for me, it came to a head in 2010 when my family and I, we moved from Hawaii to Oxford. And I was actually born in Oxford. So it was like going back home in some ways for me. And I mm. uh, did, did a, a master's program there at the school, the university. And during that two-year period, God just spoke to my heart and was like, hey, this is a season where you need to be more real with me than ever before. Um, this is a season where you need to take all those struggles and doubts and just bring them to the surface. I want you to wrestle with me through your faith. And the, the story that kept coming back of kind of a, a picture for that time was of Jacob wrestling with God in the book of, of Psalms. Like that was to be me in that season. And so I, I shared, you know, with some close friends, my wife, mentors, like, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. Here's, here's some of the doubts I'm having, you know, theologically. 
and just began to work through them. And I'd say the first part of that season was really tough, really tough. Um, the part of my study in philosophy was looking at the works of atheists and engaging with their objections to the faith and hmm. finding a lot of common resonance. Like, oh, I can identify with what they're saying to some degree. Like they're yes. bringing this objection. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And and so it was kind of the, this dark year. In the words of Nietzsche, he said, if you stare into the abyss, you know, the abyss will stare into you. It was kind of that moment of like existential, like doubt, crisis. And David in the Psalms talks about this too. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this mm-hmm. moment of haunting, haunting, almost crushing nothingness. God, where are you in this? And yes. there, that was a dark night of the soul for me, mm-hmm. that first season. Um, but slowly, and I talk about this in the book, God brought me out of that to a season of reconstruction and it was healthy. It was challenging. Mm. It's hard, but like Jacob, you know, you you come out of a long night wrestling and it's like, you've been changed at a fundamental level. Like Jacob's name was changed Mm. to Israel, but you always walk with a limp. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. yeah. So the, the most challenging bit is okay knowing what to do with it and for me keeping it hidden for so long wasn't good it it was like an acid that was kind of gnawing at me Mm. and i had to bring it into the light but on the flip side what's hard about it well it it continues like i don't think doubt or questions will ever go away in fact i have a different way of looking at it now i actually see doubt and questions as an opportunity Mm. not as a threat anymore Um, i see it as an invitation to go deeper with God, to wrestle with God, to explore aspects of our faith. Mm. I think doubt can be the, the very thing that makes our faith more alive and gritty and vulnerable. That's good. That's really good, man. Yeah. I, I agree so much with that. I think that's so helpful for people because I feel like for a lot of us growing up as, as Christians, we didn't really feel like we were allowed to doubt. And to me, it always goes back to the story of Thomas. I mean, Thomas the doubter, right? That's his nickname. <laughs> and how does Jesus engage with him? Does he burst through the wall right. and say, here's my hands, Thomas, and <laughs> shove it in his face and go, how dare you doubt me? Right. You're out of the 12. Like, no, he, he seems like he's so yeah. gentle with doubters and yeah. so willing to uh, engage them. And I, I love this quote from your book. It's doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. But if we name yeah. our doubts and drag them into the light, we may find resolution or we may discover the tension of authentically living in a doubt filled faith. I thought that was really, really good. Mm. Oh yeah. You know, I, I think an important point to bring, bring up here too is one of the reasons why many people have felt threatened by the word doubt. You mm. see it as a four letter word is because of a theological misconception and perception of what doubt is. So one of the eye-opening things for me is actually when you go into the Bible and say, okay, I want to do a study. What does the Bible say about doubt? Mm. What you find is, think of faith as a spectrum, right? So on one side, you have deep faith. That's where Jesus wants us to be, Mm. trusting in him, wholeheartedly pursuing him. We we see through a glass darkly, then face face to face, that kind of uh, limping uh, gritty faith that Jacob had. That's where, that's where Jesus wants us to be. Yeah. Now, the opposite of that isn't doubt. 
I, for years, I thought it was. I, I always just thought in my mind the opposite of faith is, is doubt. No, the in Scripture, the opposite of faith is unbelief, yeah. right? Yeah. And unbelief in the Bible actually is a sin, right? It's this, this Greek word apostia, right. and it means an unwillingness to yeah, believe. I was going to ask so you to define that. In the Gospel that, of Mark. It's not a lack of belief, yeah. but it's a refusal to believe, right? It's a refusal. So, yeah, Mark, I think Mark 3 or Mark 5 says Jesus could do no great work in a village because of their unbelief. Mm. So it, it's saying, you know what? I, I've kind of made up my mind. I've, I've chosen this, right? And and I, I'm not open to change. That's that's unbelief. And the Bible calls unbelief a sin. Mm. Doubt, on the other hand, is a, is a different space entirely. It's somewhere in between faith and unbelief. The word doubt is diacrino, mm. and it, it just means to to be torn in two. Mm. It's actually related to a Latin word, which means dubitare which comes from another word meaning two. So doubt literally is you're, you're in kind of two places at once. You're, yeah. you're, you're seeing things from two different perspectives. You're in, you're in two minds. Or think of the book of James, right? The person who doubts is like man torn, uh, who's, who's going back and forth on the waves, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of two-ness. And, and what, what's fascinating if you're into anthropology or sociology, you do a study of different cultures and this idea of two-ness and doubt always go to, go to, goes together. Mm-hmm. So like the Greeks, their word for doubt was a tearing of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, even the ancient Chinese, they define doubt as a man with a foot in two separate boats. <laughs> <laughs> you know how they have these word pictures for their wow. letters? Yeah, That was their word picture for doubt. There was a guy with a foot in two separate boats, which isn't going to end well, right? Uh, <laughs> no, no, in, <laughs> in, per, in Peru, I had a chance to go there before COVID. Um, in Peru, doubt in their language is having two thoughts. Same with Guatemala. It's a heart that's made two. So it's this idea of two-ness, right? Mm, yeah. I, I've heard it said that it's like if you're in a river and on one bank you have, you have doubt or a belief and the other bank is unbelief. Mm. Well, doubt is kind of like this middle space in between. Mm. Now, here's the key. Just because you doubt doesn't mean you're in sin. Mm. Yeah. It's what you do with your doubt is key. Mm. So you can have this moment of doubt. Think of the Psalms, right? Or yeah. think Job or think Jacob or think Peter or they're think full Thomas. Of, or, full of doubts. They're, the Bible's full of people who ask questions. That's <laughs> so you know? good to hear. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Mm. And they had these uncertainties. Mm. What did they do with it? Right. Some would say, I'm going to take these uncertainties. I'm going to use it as an excuse to walk away from God. Mm. Others say no think Psalms, I think Psalms is a brilliant example. I have these uncertainties, but it's going to lead me into a closer relationship with God, mm. right? Yeah. So it's what you do with your doubts. That's the key. And that's where it will lead you either into deeper faith or into unbelief. Mm. That's really good. Man, what a good response. Let me let me now jump over to another question, if that's okay. This is from a former student of mine. Really, really appreciate that she sent this in because I think it resonates so much with what so many young people go through. So she says this, uh, Growing up in the faith can cause a lot of doubts when you start to grow older because you can feel like your faith isn't actually yours, but it was your parents' faith handed down to you. How can church-born Christians combat these feelings? Oh, man, that is such a good question. And it's one I relate to 110%. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's like every single person has to have their own real, authentic encounter with the living God. Hmm. 
And the faith of your parents is a beautiful thing. It provides a wonderful framework. It's like scaffolding for a house, right? Right. But there comes a point in your life for some people, it's 12, for others, it's 22, others, it's 42. But there comes a point in your life where like, okay, that framework I was handed was really helpful at that stage in my life, but I actually need to make my faith my own, mm. right? And I, I, you know, I come back to that story of Jacob, because that was his story. I mean, talk about awesome parents and a spiritual background. I mean, <laughs> he had quite the heritage of, of people that mm. were related to him, right? Abraham and others. And, but Jacob, he needed his own real encounter with God. He needed, he needed to be changed. He needed something that would transform him. And here's the thing, either I I see one of two paths. Um, There can be that intentional point you come to in life where you say, you know, I'm thirsty for more of God. Like Mm -hmm. David said in the Psalms, Oh, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. As the deer thirsts for the water, my soul thirsts. There's a thirst in me that I've been drinking from the well of what my parents handed me. It was great, but I'm still thirsty. And that thirst is going to drive you to an intentional, I'm, I'm going to go deeper here. Yeah. And yeah. that could be reading, that could be learning, that could be seeking God more, that could be getting good counsel, mentorship. Mm, yeah. Maybe it's even a season of deconstruction, but there's that intentional shift in your, in your own heart where you make the decision to say, I'm going to, I'm going to see God like never before. I'm going to bring it all on the table. I'm going to wrestle with him. This, this is going to be a year or a month or a season or whatever, 10 years where I'm just going to, you know, hash it out with, with the creator of the universe. So there's that option. And then the other option, um, which I think happens to all of us too, is God kind of forces you into seasons of life (laughs) where you have to go deeper. You have no choice. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Okay, the scaffolding's fallen off. You know, maybe your parents die, mm. or the world goes into lockdown, mm. or you go through a tragedy, or you just lost your job, or your fiance broke off the relationship, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly you're in this season where your head's spinning, and like you know, in Psalm 73, it's, it starts by saying God is good. Okay, that's the foundation. But then we forget verse two. <laughs> the very next verse, he says, "As for me, my feet almost slipped." Mm. That's doubt. Mm. That's where you say, "Okay, I for years believed this about God. I for years believed God is good. I for years heard all the sermons. I for years have this foundation." But now I'm living in verse two. Mm. You know, my feet are slipping. You know, I look out the window right now, it's smoky and that's what fog or that's what doubt's like. It's like a fog for the soul. I don't see the sun. (laughs) I don't know what's happening. It's hard to breathe here. Right. Yeah. Um, And God will take you through times of that. And what I would say is that's normal. Don't panic. Mm. This is an opportunity for your face to grow. Don't despair. Seek him. There's something God wants to show you now. There's ways that God wants to change you now and allow allow what God's spirit is doing to do it in your life. Be open, be open. That, that's really helpful because it's showing that there is this element of our participation in our relationship with God. I feel like a lot of times the mentality many people have is as long as I keep going to church, God is just going to continue to show mm-hmm. up in my life and do you know, all the right things are going to happen to me. But the Bible says, ask and seek and knock. It's this call into a relationship. But I, I think the follow-up question I would have, because this is something I've thought through myself, I'll set it up with this. So I've spoken at youth camps and a lot of times I've told my testimony. 
I was born as a pastor's kid. I lived a very kind of normal Christian life, but I have had things. I've got, I've got a few stories where basically I've had miraculous things happen to me, like things that I can't explain apart from God being real. And I look at that in my own life as a blessing of it's kind of that Thomas moment where he says to Thomas, you know, blessed are those, you know, who have seen my great miracles and they believe, but also even more blessed are those who haven't seen. But I I have things in my life I can point to where I'm like, I can't explain that apart from Jesus. What I've heard from some Mm -hmm. young people, though, is, Aaron, we love when you tell these stories because it gives us faith, you know, that God is real because we hear your testimony. But my entire life, I have always wanted experiences like that. I've never had Mm -hmm. some crazy encounter with God. I barely Mm -hmm. even feel like he's speaking to me in a way that's tangible. I continue to read my Bible. I continue to pray. I continue to go to church, but I don't get these big, crazy experiences. How can someone like me continue to have faith in times of doubt? Mm, My goodness, that's a great question. You know, I think God deepens faith and makes himself known in different ways, in different stories at different times. And for some people, their story is the one of dramatic conversion, right? Right. They were like the drug user, alcoholic, and on this path of destruction. And then God like literally just showed up and it was like a Damascus Road thing. And mm. it was undeniable, right? The light was shining and boom, this person was knocked down and they heard God and they'll never doubt again after what they just went through. Right, um, right. Other people, it's not so much that, you know, like I, I look at my own story and yeah, they, there's been some cool things that God has done, but I wouldn't say like there's been these crazy things where I've seen it myself where the heavens have split open and, you know, or I look up and I see that in the clouds, I am Yahweh, right? <laughs> yeah, um, like, right. <laughs> And, and, and so for my story, it's been different, you know, um, my story, it's been more um, wrestling with stuff, mm. and learning and asking questions and other people I know it's very experiential and very emotional. So I don't think we can just pigeonhole what God's spirit wants to do. You know, Jesus in John three, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he's like, you know, the spirit of God's like a wind and you don't know which way it's going to blow from one way to the next. And yeah. I think we just be, we need to be open to God speaking in all ways. And the moment we say, okay, my faith is going to be all about, you know, apologetic answers. Well, okay, but maybe there's another aspect, another dimension that God is going to bring into your faith that's more experiential and more emotional. Are you open to that? Yeah, or other people are like, good. no, my faith is purely emotional, purely experiential, right? Okay, but are you open to maybe some of the rational let us reason together, says the Lord, right? Yeah. But there, there's different elements, different facets, and there's different seasons in our life where God leads us into different evidences and proofs and yes. uh, yeah. purposes for our lives. So mm. I think we have to be open. But I, I'd say even on a deeper level, what if God wants to take us into a season where it's more about trust, mm. even if we're not getting the experiences, the answers that we hope for? That's good. And I would actually argue that's the definition of deep faith. That's really good. Um, C.S. Lewis, he has this obscure book. I don't know if you've read it, um, but man, it's so good. It's called Till We Have Faces. Mm. And No, I haven't. Um, what's interesting, it's so worth reading. Yeah. yeah. He was once asked, what's your favorite book you've ever written? Which is an interesting question. <laughs> and he said, well, it, it's that one. It's Till We Have Faces. 
and <laughs> that's great. It's one of his least least known books. It's a fiction book. It's a retelling of an ancient myth, wow. but it's beautiful. It's it's absolutely compelling. That so I anyway, recommend that book. But there's this there's this haunting line in that book that has just stuck with me over the years. It says, "I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer." Hmm before your face questions die away, what other answers would suffice? Mm. And and I think deep faith has come to that place of like, you know, I, I don't know if I have to answer like I used to, but there's a deeper trust in Jesus. You you are yourself the answer, mm. right? That, that Job kind of faith, oh, you slay me, yet will I trust you. The Jacob kind of faith where he, he had a limp, but his name was changed. The John the Baptist kind of faith who was languishing in prison. And he, I mean, for crying out loud, he's, he baptized Jesus. Yeah. I mean, talk about a sign, right? Totally. <laughs> he, he saw the spirit of God come down from heaven. He heard the father say, this is my son, right? I mean, it doesn't get any more experiential or emotional than that. Mm. What's crazy is that it wasn't long after that he's in prison. And then he sends a text message to Jesus, right? He's like, are you, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Mm. <laughs> That's just amazing to me. He just went through one of the most impactful, you know, historic experiences ever. And yet he still had doubt. And what I love about the story is Jesus didn't rebuke him for his less than perfect faith. Yes. He, he, didn't, he didn't say, you know what, go tell that guy, John, that he's off the team. Like, how could you go through such a thing and still have doubt? You know, it, 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 I'm not looking for those kind of disciples, but Jesus didn't do that. Mm. Jesus said, among those born women, no one greater <laughs> has been born. So he mm. fully affirms John the Baptist. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Even, even in his place of, of uncertainty. And, mm. and I think that's so important to mention here is like, even if you feel like your faith is failing, even if you feel like your faith is fragile, even if you look around, you see all these people with strong faith and wow, they just seem to have this relationship with God that's so vibrant and they're always telling me about these experiences. God spoke to me or they're posting stuff online like God's spirit just ministered to me. You're like, I want that kind of relationship <laughs> too, right? You yeah. need to know that you you are where God wants you to be right now and God's gonna be speaking to your life in ways that are surprising, that are unusual, that are different. No one story is the same. And even if you're the John the Baptist right now, kind of locked away in quarantine and you're, <laughs> yeah. are you the Messiah? Should we look for another? Jesus still thinks the world of you. That's really good. That's beautiful. And yeah, that actually speaks perfectly to a, a follow-up question that was sent, which was, you know, how should members of the church address so many young people that have walked away from their faith or had doubts and struggles? And I think you beautifully just said it. It's the way Jesus handles doubting John the Baptist mm -hmm. and handles Thomas, doubting Thomas. It's not, oh, I can't believe you would doubt me after all I've shown you. How dare right. you? I'm done with you. It's this gentleness and this love and you know, he's the shepherd, right? Who goes after the wandering sheep. Mm. I think every person listening to this who's in a season of doubt needs to know it's not that you've wandered mm. away from God and now he's distant from you and he's just waiting for you to come back. He's actually gone after you. He's pursuing mm -hmm. you. He's, he's, he's right. continuing to chase you down because he loves you and he's going to send many things to speak yeah. to you. Maybe even this podcast is something that he's using mm -hmm. to, to chase you down. But I, 
I'd love to jump to a question from another friend of mine. It is, mm-hmm. when will the difficulty of doubt disappear? When will it happen? Like, <laughs> like will, will it be the spontaneous uh, moment where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I get it now and I won't doubt anymore? Or is doubt just something that Christians need to be comfortable with living with? Yeah, it, I mean, that's the answer right there. I think it's learning to live in the tension of an unresolved faith. Mm. So, I mean, I could say there are some people out there and I I genuinely envy them who honestly, they don't ever seem to doubt. And (laughs) they've always believed they were singing Hillsong in their mother's womb, right? It's like they they were born Christians, it seems like, and they've, they've never looked back. And that's great. Like, I, I, if that's your story, if you're listening to this right now, you're like, I can't relate to what you're talking about because I've never had a doubt in my life. Then I just say, man, that's a beautiful thing. Own that part of your story. That's great. That's awesome. But for the majority of us who do experience doubts and questions, yeah, it, it now we see through a glass dimly, but mm. then we will see face to face. So I don't think personally there's ever going to come a time this side of heaven where there aren't going to be questions. And I would even take it a step further. Um, This opens up a whole can of worms, but I just throw it out there for people to think about. Mm. Um, And I talk about this in chapter one, but I would actually argue that God created the world in such a way where doubts and questions Mm. exist. The Mm. doubts and questions are actually part of the package. Mm. And there's a whole like backstory of theology here, but just think about like the concept of God creating something. When God creates something, um, he's not creating a version of himself, right? He's not, that's um, pantheism. He's not creating God Mm, 2.0. He's creating something other than God, correct? So if it's other than God, and this is like theologically deep waters here, but he's creating something other than God, then by definition, it's going to be in some sense less than God, right? Absolutely. So if it's less than God, then there is going to be some element of uncertainty or doubts or questions or unknowing. We could Mm -hmm. use that word. Yeah. And so I would, if you know, if you look at kind of a progression or theology of doubt in the Bible, most Christians, they get their theology of doubt from Genesis 3. Hmm. They're like, okay, where does doubt come from? There was a serpent, a <laughs> snake, and he whispered doubt in the ear of Eve. Right. She believed him. She ate. She gave to Adam. He ate, and the, the world you know, fell. Hence, yeah. you know, racism and sexism and COVID and war and pestilence and all the horrible things we see today because it's all out of salt. Yeah, I think, okay. I think that's correct. It does, it does give, if they're t- looking at Genesis for their view of doubt, it's definitely going to paint a picture in your mind that doubt is synonymous totally. with sin. And with, if Satan. You, with Satan. With, yeah. It's satanic. And if you ever doubt, you're going to be responsible for bringing all types of horrors yes. into your life and family and everything. Yes. Mm, yeah. and, and I would say, okay, there's definitely some truth there. Obviously, I believe in the fall of Adam and Eve and the horrors that original sin brought. Totally. I, I get that. Hmm. But I think our theology of doubt needs to go back. I think what Satan's doing there is unbelief. Our theology of doubt goes back to Genesis 1. And what you find in Genesis 1 is that God creates a world where unknowing was kind of built into the system as yeah. a great thing. So Adam and Eve, they didn't know everything. They're put in a garden. They, they had questions. They were told to name the animals, right? They're like, okay, what do we call this thing? What do we call it? They didn't know. Hmm. Eden was a garden that had very real limits. You know, it actually tells us there in Genesis, and this was the limit. This was the, this river was the barrier. So 
it had limits, it had boundaries, it had barriers, they had limits to their knowledge, limits to their time, limits to their intellect, on and on. And yet, those limitations that God built into the system were actually an invitation for them to grow, mm. to explore, to discover, to mm. be fruitful, to multiply, to ask questions, to name the animals, right? So God gives them, gives the world a degree of mystery because it was a pathway into intimacy. I think it's like any relationship. You know, I, I've known my wife now for years and she's amazing. I know a lot about her, obviously, but I, I don't literally know every single thing. Like mm. this moment, I don't know literally where she is or what she's doing. I know she's probably at home right now helping my daughter with homeschool, but I don't know what she's thinking. I, I don't know what song they're listening to, right? <laughs> if I literally knew everything about my wife, like every placement of every atom, every thought she had, I mean, that'd be kind of creepy and weird, right? Yeah. There's there's still uncertainty in our relationship. <laughs> there, A little element there, of mystery there. There's element of mystery, <laughs> right? There's there's times where she'll surprise me. Yeah. She'll share something with me like, oh, I know just the other day, a couple of days ago, she's like, she shared a story with me from when she was younger. I didn't know that story. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. That's always so the, the point best. Is, I'm, <laughs> in that's marriage. always the best. I yeah, I'm still learning about her. I'm still discovering aspects of her. Mm. And I would argue that's what keeps a relationship alive. Mm. That degree of mystery, anticipation, expectation, mm. the asking of questions, the unearthing of truths. That's a beautiful thing. Mm. And and I think God built into this system, the, the world, into all of creation, a degree of mystery mm. as an invitation into deeper intimacy. This is why we see language all throughout Scripture that says, ask, mm. seek, knock, come let us reason together. Wow. Hey, let's walk together in the cool of the day. All of these things is God's way of saying, there's mystery here, but it's going to give you opportunity to go deeper. I. I genuinely find that beautiful and I've never thought of it that way. I think I think to clarify just for the sake of the listener, I don't think what you're saying is that God is the cause of our doubts. Like he's plotting, you know, the things that he, he's going to cause us to doubt because doubt can be frustrating. It can be hard. God, mm -hmm. he's not behind our frustration. But the, the way that I picture it is, I'm thinking of my dad when I was little and I can remember, you know, times where we would do things, for instance, you know, teaching me how to swim and he's standing in the pool and I'm standing on the edge of the pool and he's saying, jump in. And I'm doubting. Mm. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to drown. Right. You're not going to catch me. This isn't going to work. And he knows because he's my dad and he obviously understands that he is more powerful than me in this situation. He knows that he's not going to let me drown. He's going to teach me how to swim. It's going to be okay. But I'm doubting in the moment. Mm. Uh, but then I jump in and I trust him and I see him come through. He allowed me to be in a position mm -hmm. where I would doubt him. He allowed that to right. happen, but he knew all along what would be the outcome. And that's how I see God, not the, the one who's causing our doubt. He's not the author of our mm -hmm. doubt, but he's allowed, like, like you said, he's created the world in a way where there is an element of mystery. He didn't just make us robots where everything is programmed and everything, you know, it's not this fatalistic idea of everything just happens mm. because it was programmed to happen. He allowed us in this space where there's mystery and where there are elements and situations we're going to be in where our natural response is going to be to doubt God because we've never been in that situation before and we've never seen him come through. But he's on the other side saying, you know, I am here, jump, I'll catch you, watch what happens. And that that's something I see. There's a lot of beauty in that. I, I love what you're saying. Oh, that's, yeah, that, wow, that's a really beautiful analogy. 
of, of jumping in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, God isn't the author of our doubts. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Mm-hmm. But to get from a work starting to a work finishing, from faith starting to faith finishing, in between the steps you have to take, doubt, and, and you know, for some people, the word doubt is a hangup. Sometimes you just need to use the word questions, <laughs> yeah. right? Questions yeah. are the stepping stone that gets us into a deeper faith, right? It's because you're asking these questions. Did you know, like Jesus, he asked his, his followers mm. over 300 questions in wow. the Gospels, <laughs> 300. So he is very rabbinic, right? In the way that he went about things. Our, our model of teaching, especially now with COVID, is like you sit in front of a screen, you listen to a lecture, you take notes. But the rabbinic way, and Socrates was this way too, is you ask your students questions Mm. because they believed in the asking of questions, truth was revealed. Mm. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples, right? So who do you say I am? Mm. I think about the power of that question. Mm. And what that question did is it forced them to open up within their own assumptions and force them really to come to terms with, oh, who do I say I am? Mm. So the question was a catalyst to deeper faith. I love that. And and that's why I see doubt, right? So. It's not like God is conspiring. I want them to go through a really hard time. And so <laughs> I'm just going to plant these seeds of doubt. No, God's saying, I want to take you to deeper faith. Yeah. And where you're at right now, these questions you're experiencing, stop seeing them as the enemy and learn that I want to redeem those things to take you to a place that when you look back at it five years or 10 years from now, you'll be like, man, I was so thankful I wrestled with that because now I'm, I'm, I've learned what it means to trust. Wow. That's beautiful. Well, our time is almost up, man. So let me just throw some more of these out to, you know, try to honor the people that have asked. But, you know, the leftovers, maybe we'll tackle on another another episode sometime, huh? Yeah, I would love to, man. I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. That's great. Okay, well, here's, here's one from a friend of mine who's actually an atheist and uh, a very dear friend. And her question is, is all faith good and is all religion relevant? And for me, like, I understand that question you know, coming from someone who is understanding that outside of Christianity, there can kind of be this sentiment of like Christians are elitist, you know, when it comes to religion, mm-hmm. many non-believers mm-hmm. would see Christians as seeing themselves as holier than everyone. And, you know, yeah. that while other religions are content to coexist, Christians seem to kind of be bent on proving that other religions are false or bad. So, you know, do you think that all religions have some validity or how do we respond to that as Christians? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think there's kind of two aspects and two different ways of approaching that question. One is, you know, are all religions valid or true? We believe we follow Jesus, right? And so we believe that he is the way, the truth, and mm-hmm. the life. And we've chosen to center our mind around him and our hearts around him and, you know, our practices around him, how we do life. Now, should that lead to elitism? No. Actually, I think that should lead us to a deep humility mm, <laughs> because I agree. the one thing that we begin to realize the closer we get to Jesus is, wow, I have got so, so far to go, right? We, you look at it's reading about Paul and, you know, at the beginning of his faith, he's like, man, I, I am... I'm a chief of sinners. Yeah. Right? I've got, I, I look at my heart and I've got so many things that 
that aren't aren't good in me and towards the end of his faith though you would think he'd come to a place where he'd be completely filled with even more faith and like i'm doing a lot better now but at the end of his faith if you look at, at timothy he's like i'm still i'm the chief of sinners. i've still got all these things in me that aren't <laughs> right and i think a sign of maturity in many ways is you realize how immature you are and how far you've got to go so you know, for, for the atheists who would say, yeah, the Christians I know are elitist. I, I, I think that's heartbreaking and so sad. And because that Jesus was anything, yeah, he's anything but that. And Jesus' own character, he said, I am meek and lowly, right? So hmm. that, that should be the thing that begins to define us, hopefully. Yeah. Now, yeah. the question as to faith, like it's all, what was it? Is all faith relevant or is all faith valid? I would actually argue, and no, not everyone's going to agree with this especially those who, who may have an atheistic perspective. But in my season of life, when I began to look at atheism very closely, I talk about this in the book in chapters three and four, I began to realize that atheism is the faith position too. Mm. Um, that, and by that, I mean, it comes with its own set of values and assumptions and ways of doing life. If you do not believe there is God, then inevitably, and this goes back to Nietzsche, Nietzsche was a very honest atheist. He argued for this in his writings. If you abandon belief in God, mm. that will have a very real impact, not only on the individual, but culture and society as a whole. Mm. And so I began to see, oh, wait a minute, atheism isn't just the abandonment of a faith. It's actually another worldview. <laughs> it's mm. another way of doing life. It's another way, for example, of interpreting morality right. or understanding a term such as justice. Where do we get justice from? In an atheistic worldview, that's a really hard question to answer. Right. I, I think a lot harder to answer from than from a theistic perspective. And is there ultimate justice? That's really hard to answer if you're an atheist, because if you're honest, uh, check out Straw Dogs by John Gray. He's a, he's a, he lives in England. He's an atheist kind of a Nietzschean atheist, and he would actually argue, no, there is there is no such thing. We cannot say as atheists that there is ultimate justice, mm -hmm. which is a fascinating cultural cultural thing that we're seeing. It, there's a cry for justice. Like think of our city of Portland right now. Everyone's you know rallying under this banner of justice, which, mm -hmm. okay, that's a beautiful thing. You see justice in scripture. But if, if you have an atheistic worldview or an agnostic worldview, how do you justify justice and is ultimate justice a reality right? right now we believe as followers of jesus yeah there there is ultimate justice it will be done but as an atheist you cannot honestly say that yeah. and so that that actually has implications so again i, I talk about that in chapter soon for the huge topic but i would just humbly suggest um, that atheism is a worldview and to look at it honestly to ask yourself okay where does my atheism lead yeah it's a tough question it's a hard one and i i love your respect for people who have those other viewpoints even in your response mm. i mean what a what a gentle response. And I think that's the way as Christians we should operate. I think many of us who grew up in the church, we can tend to form this viewpoint of just, you know, Christianity just makes sense. And it's, it's obvious. And if you don't believe it, you're, you're a fool, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. one thing I was talking to my co-host Brian about recently was 
when we really look at what we believe and compare it to other religions like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, I mean, there's stuff that we think of as obvious because we grew up with it. But like Mm -hmm. to people who aren't Christians, I mean, one, we sing songs about being washed in blood. Uh, We talk about, you know, talking snakes (laughs) in the garden and uh, demons and angels. Like there's a lot of stuff that to normal, I say normal, but I mean, unsaved people, it's like, Mm -hmm. what on earth is that? So if we can have a humility of addressing like, yeah, what we believe is kind of strange, we believe it because we desperately believe it's true. And the only reason yeah. we're trying to convince somebody who's not a Christian or another religion to sway away from that is because mm-hmm. to us, if what we believe is true, that means mm-hmm. that you are walking off of a cliff into a pit. And mm. it would be wrong morally for us to not try to convince you to just let you go mm-hmm. your way. It, yeah. That would be the moral equivalent of if it's 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 hard because you have to step into someone else's shoes and go, OK, if what this person believes yeah. is true, yeah. then this and that and that. So, yeah, it's it, it's. Yeah. A, well, I think I think we all need a dose of existential humility, because, mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, all worldviews are weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all all faith is weird you know whether whether it's some religious belief or it's non-belief it's weird it really is like it's a weird thing to think like you said wow these certain theological perspectives or it's weird to say there's no ultimate justice or this is all accidental that's really weird too or the explanation (laughs) of consciousness or morality yeah that's that's weird too however the the whole thing's weird (laughs) yeah it, and, it so, is weird, and so which sure. weird, which, which version of weirdness <laughs> makes most sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, because if truth exists, it's, it is a noble quest to pursue truth. And I say yeah. that not just to Christians. I say that to an atheist. I say that to anybody. If in your heart, what you're trying to do is pursue truth, that's something I can respect. And my hope would just be uh, that you would discover what I believe to be true as true. <laughs> and I'm sure they'd say right. the same thing to yeah. me, but that that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And I truly do believe that the Holy Spirit uh, really does play a part in, in waking people up. And mm. so for us, we deliver the news, we deliver the message, and then we trust God to get in there. But yes. do you have time for one more question before you have Yeah, to go? sure. Let's do one more. Okay. Yeah. I think this would be a great one to close on. This This came in from actually two different people asking the same thing. So this is uh, on the list, the uh, most valued question <laughs> with two X. Okay. Um, okay. Should we, in today's age, have childlike faith? And what we mean by that is, you know, to, in today's age of postmodernism, uh, childlike faith can look a lot like ignorance. And to be fair, like that does make sense to me because I, I have looked down on cults, you know, for their views and thought, oh, you know, their, their views are foolish. Postmodern world values evidence, not blind faith. So should we pursue childlike faith or should we pursue evidence? What's the balance? Okay. I, I, that's a great question. It's almost a trick question, right? Because <laughs> Jesus actually did say that we need to have faith yeah. as children. Right. But what he didn't mean by that was have an ignorant, blind faith. Mm, wow. He meant have a trusting, open faith. And what I love about kids and childlike wonder, think about when we were kids, right? You just, you ask questions. You, yeah. It's yeah. the question, why? Why this? Why that? You're always open. You're very honest. <laughs> kids are so honest. Mm. Um, and they'll, they'll share what they're thinking. And so when Jesus said, I want you to have faith like a child, he's not saying, just, just shut up. Your Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think Jesus would have put that bumper sticker on his car. Is that somebody's talking I about? I don't. He's not either. saying, 
Yeah, he's not saying be ignorant. He's saying be open, be trusting, and ask questions, mm. right? So I think of the Nobel laureate, um, Isidore Isaac Rabi. Yeah, I think he lived in the 1930s, 1940s. And he was nominated for this Nobel Peace Prize and for his works in work in science. And a journalist once asked him, they're like, so how do you how do you credit your success? I mean, you've done amazing things. Hmm. He said, you know, I, I'll credit it the way my mom would greet me when I came home from work or from school. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, when I got when most kids get home, they're like, you know, did you learn anything good today? And he said, when I got home from school, my mom would ask, did you ask any good questions today? Mm, wow. And he said, that for me made the difference. He said, because as a kid, I learned the importance of asking questions. Mm. And that's why you go to the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, you look at Judaism as a whole. And it was this culture of asking questions. Deuteronomy, God's like, I want parents, I want you to engage the questions of your kids. Deuteronomy says, when your kids ask these things, here's how you're to respond to them. Don't shut them down, right? The Victorians, they said kids should be seen but not heard. That was so opposite from, yeah. from what the Bible actually says. The Bible yeah. says, ask questions. And it specifically commanded Israelite children, hey, ask questions mm. of your parents. So it was like this culture of question asking, which you can then trace through the book of Psalms, which you can trace in the book of Job, which you can see in the writings of the justice prophets, which you see in Jesus, who asked over 300 questions of his disciples. There was this, this culture of childlike wonder, openness, trust, and asking questions, the exact opposite of okay, be ignorant, shut up, yeah. and just believe it, yeah. right? So mm. that's how I would interpret the childlike aspect. It's like to be truly childlike to is be, to be truly filled with wonder. Yeah, to be inquisitive and to ask. I, man, that's, mm. that's so beautiful. And for me, like, I can just speak into that and in saying that for me, like, as a Christian, I've grown the most when I've been around mentors who will pour into me and allow me to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And so that would be an encouragement I'd give to anyone listening to this. If you find yourself in a place where you don't have people around you who will actually wrestle through questions with you, there's a difference between people who will wrestle with you and people who will just give you simple religious platitudes or just go, mm -hmm. here's a verse. And then that's it, you know, but mm -hmm. I would encourage everyone to, who's listening to this, find someone who will wrestle through your doubts and your questions with you. And it doesn't even yeah. need to be necessarily somebody who has all the answers. It could be somebody who is wise and trusted, but they might say, Hey, listen, I, I don't know everything. There's going to be things you ask me where I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you the clear cut answer you want, but I will pray with you about it and we will seek mm. God together and see what he tells us. And I think that's mm. so valuable. That's what, that's what we're doing here. Thank you for accepting the invitation to come into this space and be a, a trusted mentor to the listeners of this mm. show and to speak into their questions and, and doubts. And uh, I think you've done that so well. This has been such a blessing and I've, I've just been sitting back being encouraged by all of this. So I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for being here, man. Oh man. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. I think you, you're living out what I, what I think is the answer to those who are, who are doubting and questioning. You're providing that safe space for people. And so thank you for that. And any who are listening, like if you're in a place of doubt, it's, it's okay. And I just believe that God wants to take you further and deeper as you don't try and suppress your doubts, but instead allow your doubts to be redeemed. Beautiful.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io slash support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.